Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Best Ever You Show. I'm Elizabeth Hamilton Garino here with Ed Begley Jr. Uh, hello, Ed. How are you? Very good, Elizabeth. It's so nice to talk to you. Thank you for being here with us. So for those of you used to our audio podcast, we're switching things up a little bit here to do some fun things on Sunday nights, just to bring you some peace for your Sunday and Monday. I think the, the world needs a little bit of peaceful programming right now. And uh, so we're bringing some guests in on Sunday nights. And I'm very grateful to Anthony Turk for bringing you here with us tonight. And yeah, here's our here's our water. Just everybody kick back, relax, and let's have a conversation with you, Ed. How how wonderful it is to to hang out with you for we're gonna be here for an hour or so. So thank it's you. It's a delight to be with you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me on. And if if people want to, you know, look around while they're listening to us, what website would you like people to go to? Edbegley.com has a lot of stuff there about, you know, there's other ways to get there, begleyliving.com, but edbegley.com is the easiest to remember. It all leads to the same place. I have a lot of tips from Rochelle about nutrition, what have you, and fitness and, you know, things like that. Rochelle cares about that stuff. And I care about a lot of the, you know, nuts and bolts kind of gearhead stuff, you know, solar panels and good insulation and energy efficient lighting and HVAC units that are efficient. That's my kind of thing. But she wants it to look good. That was kind of the basis of our show. She th wants things to look nice. I want them to work nice. But you can have both, as we've proven with this, what you see behind me a bit of, we have what's called a lead platinum home, a very energy efficient home. And I'll talk about that as much or as little as you want. Oh, as much, please, because we have a humanity section on the Best Ever You Network. And, um, you know, that is one of the huge reasons why I wanted to have you as a guest was to talk about in the environment and environmental activism. And what was it, what's it like to be... A, ahead of your time on that. <laughs> you know, I got started in 1970 for some bad reasons and some good reasons. The bad reason was living in the smog. Smoggy LA in the 50s and 60s was horrible, horrible choking smog. And I got involved because the Cuyahoga River caught fire near Cleveland. I don't know about you, but I think it's a bad sign when rivers catch fire. Yeah, and, very. You know, Santa Barbara oil spill, all sorts of things, all that's the negative. The positive was my dear dad. He was a conservative that liked to conserve. We turn off the lights, we turn off the water, we save string, we save tinfoil. He was a son of Irish immigrants. He had lived through the Great Depression. He never used the word environmentalist much, but he was one. And so he died within a few days of that first Earth Day in 1970. So I did a lot of this stuff to honor him more than anything. And I'll briefly say, and then I'll shut up, I want to hear from you, of course, but everything that I did in 1970, I was a broken, struggling actor. My dad had just passed, so I didn't have him as a meal ticket. It was all very cheap. It had to be because I couldn't afford it. So people say to me, I can't afford a fancy electric car like you. I can't afford solar panels like you. I go, neither could I when I started. Do what you can today. I love that. So I have environmental scientists all around me. Our son is getting his master's degree in environmental science. I have a meteorologist getting a master's degree. So we're, we're, we're on board, but I always wonder if we're doing enough. So for those people who just want to start doing something, what, what can we do? There were a few choices back in 1970, and I did them all, the cheap and easy stuff. Pick the low-hanging fruit first, do what you can. Now there's even more that people can afford and will make a difference. We can't just change our light bulbs and we're going to all be okay. You know, it, it's going to take more than that. But every, if everybody did what they could within their budget, we'd be much further along than we are today. What you can do today with the me most meager of all budgets, you can change out a light bulb. You like that, you know, change some more if you can afford a few more. And they give rebates for these light bulbs at many utilities now. Get those energy efficient LED lights. They're nice warm colors now. They don't flicker. They dim. 
They work in every way possible. Get an energy saving thermostat. If you're not handy enough to put it up, get a electrician or plumber, heating air guy to come and do it. Uh, bike riding, if weather and fitness permit. Public transportation, if it's available near you. You know, and after the pandemic gets get a better handle on it, people will be more comfortable taking public transportation. I understand that. Home gardening, home composting, weather stripping around your doors and windows. Everything I just mentioned, that's a list of seven things, I think, all of them cheap and easy. And you don't run up to the top, top of Mount Everest is my point. You get to base camp and you get acclimated and then you climb as high as you can. Yeah. We've got a thing called Clink here in Maine where we take all the cans and plastic and recycle that. And um, Maine is one of the five cent refund states. So do you, uh, do you recommend that as well? Absolutely. We have a CRV container recycling value on our bottles and cans here in California. We recycle a lot. And as you probably already know, it's very hard to recycle a lot of the different polymers, a lot of the different resins. Now we used to send all that stuff over to Asia, to Indonesia, to China, and they stopped taking it. They don't want it anymore. You know, they were just having environmental problems of their own with it. And so we uh, were filling up those empty shipping containers that we bought stuff that you could buy at Costco and Walmart coming to us in the States and shipping back. We used to ship this plastic and they would recycle it. They did for a while, but they can't anymore. So we have to find a way here in this country to recycle number one, number two, number three, all those different resins that we use today, different plastic products. But most importantly for me and many others, Stop using single-use plastic. Get a metal water bottle. You know, get a, you know, I have one right in the car. Uh, uh, metal water bottle. Have a, you know, reusable mug when you go to Starbucks and on and on. Stop using single-use plastic. Metal straw. Do something, but get away from that single-use. Good, good point. Somebody just said great tips. Thanks, Chase, for writing in and giving us a comment. If you do want to put in, put in comments while we're talking, please do. We'll look at them. Uh, I can see them and we will communicate them back to Ed here. Um, I just saw in the Land's End catalog a plastic uh, a swimming suit made of recycled plastic bottles. Yeah, any way you can That's so find cool. a home for that stuff in a jacket, <laughs> in a, you know, a ruler, in a uh, park bench, we should be doing that. But also, the most effective way, and you got a big flood that's flooding your bathroom, the tub is overflowing. The first thing you want to do before you mop it up is to turn off the spigot. <laughs> turn off that spigot and stop using single-use plastic. I think this is a very good use of plastic. I think this is too, computer things, my mouse or what have you. There's plastic in that. That's fine. That's not single use. That's going to last 20 years probably, maybe more. So these can last longer than that. There's some things that are going to be around a while. That's a different story. But single use plastic, I think it's day, I hope will be done soon because of what it's doing to our oceans, to our rivers, to our parkways, and to us. We ingest about a credit card's worth of plastic and little tiny you know, microbeads and stuff every week. A credit card's worth of plastic we're all taking into our body every week. And we eliminate a lot of it, but some of it we do not. And it's stored there and it's not good for us. What do you think about going to the grocery store and putting your groceries in plastic bags, but recycling the plastic bags? I'm seeing a lot of that. You, like in Maine, you can go to the grocery store and bring your own bags. Yeah. You bring your own plastic bags. You can do lots of different things. Um, do you think it should go back to brown paper or is there anything there that's a good good idea? I know that's kind of. Yeah, paper is one solution, but I prefer, uh, I have all canvas bags for the yeah. large bags that carry the 
the big items and the smaller things like, you know, some oranges or some tangerines or some cherries or what have you, any of that stuff. I have these smaller mesh bags. You can buy online anywhere, just mesh produce bags. Just type it in at, you know, Amazon or Google or anything. Uh, yeah. Yeah, what, what did I just say? Uh, mesh. Amazon, Google, yeah. Yeah, mesh. yeah, mesh produce bags. Mesh produce bags and you get them and you don't have to use any. Pl- if you got them already in your house, feel free to use them. But stop taking them in and use those mesh produce bags and use the canvas bags to carry the big stuff and uh, you can get out of that plastic cycle. Wonderful. Did you ever get your electric station wagon that you were talking about when you were at the uh, New York University? <laughs> I never did get it. It was really only re- required for this one uh, movie. They were looking for an electric station wagon for this movie oh, I did called Page Master. The transportation captain was looking for it because it needed to be a station wagon for the story's sake in this movie, Macaulay Culkin and Page Master. I played his dad and they were afraid I was going to throw a fit if I they had a regular station wagon, even though I just could roll it down the driveway. I never really drove it or turned it on. Yeah. So, but they were, that's how nutty people thought I was back in the nineties. They were always oh, going to throw a fit because we didn't find electric station wagon. I've never seen in my life an electric station wagon and I don't really need one. I've got to find electric car now, but that was the electric station wagon story back in 94. It was. Yeah. I was doing, I was just watching a few things before the interview and I, that just struck a funny chord with me. Like a, an electric station wagon complete with the back rear facing back seat that you have to, you know, wave to all the traffic. And Chase yeah. has a question here. He says, do you feel water bottling companies will ever be regulated? There are so many brands producing plastic bottles. Yeah. I hope we find solutions. If it takes regulations that one, that's one thing. If it takes consumer behavior, you know, environmental change really is based on three pillars for me. I'm well known for the personal action one, do what you can, you know, stop buying single use plastic, uh, recycle, ride a bike. That's the personal action. But the other two pillars are very important too. That's good legislation like the clean air act that help clean up the air in LA and also corporate responsibilities. That's it. Personal action, good legislation and corporate responsibility. And they all are connected. They all work together. The reason that we're able to clean up the air in L.A., and make no mistake about it, from 1970 when we started the first Earth Day to today, there are four times the cars in L.A., millions more people, but a fraction of the smog. It's much, much less. The smog overall in L.A. is much less. That doesn't give a lot of peace to the people who live near the ports of Long Beach and San Pedro, the people living near some of these shipping fulfillment centers. There's lots of diesel trucks there, and they're getting bad pollution today. We can't leave them out of the mix. We've got to fix the air for them but we have overall come a long way. Uh, yeah, I, definitely. Do you, well, we have lots of questions here, but uh, we have another question actually from uh, a person named Olivia. Olivia says, I work in a retail store and the inventory comes in with tons of cardboard and plastic. It's just over the top. We just throw it out. Any ideas what can be done or what is being done about this? Love the questions, everybody. Thank you. Yeah, they're all good questions. Yeah. The only thing... Uh, Cardboard has its challenges. You're taking out trees to make the original cardboard, but then it can be recycled and that fiber up to a certain point can be reused and again and again till it finally starts to break down. Then you then it's mush and you can't use it anymore, but you can use it for a while. So cardboard can be recycled effectively for a while. That you get into the plastic thing, you know, we got to find ways. A lot of places have redesigned their shipping stuff so that there's no plastic or styrofoam you know, uh, it's just all cardboard kind of 
done together in a way it's, it's strong. It gives a cushioning that they wanted years ago from styrofoam. But nearly everybody's eliminated that horrible, you know, white styrofoam stuff. And that's that stuff is not good in a number of ways. So, but we got to find homes for this. We shouldn't be making this stuff if we don't have a home for it. It should be cradle to cradle, cradle like Bill McDonough says, not cradle to grave where it's born and it dies, but cradle to cradle. It should be one complete circle that everything takes and find a way to recycle everything, fully recycle it so it, it continues to have a life. The way the earth does, that's the way the natural processes work. You know, leaves fall off the tree and they make, you know, compost and it breaks down and it gives nutrients to that same tree. That's a good cycle. What do you think about our footprint, um, like our environmental footprint? Is there, is there such a thing? What, what's yours? There is. There's a carbon footprint, you know, how much CO2 that you're creating in your daily activities, in your monthly, yearly activities. That's the thing. And I try to, try to keep mine very low. I'm very lucky in a way because I bought my first electric car in 1970. And certainly there are fossil fuels to make that electricity. I know that. But then years later, I got solar. I eliminated my need for that. But most importantly, I want to bring up, I bought a wind turbine. I bought really half of a wind turbine in the California desert as part of a wind farm. So that was a 75 kilowatt wind turbine, which is very small by today's standards or a megawatt and a half today. But it was a small one in 1985. I owned half of one of those. That put out several homes worth of power every day from 1985 till just a few years ago when I happily sold my rights to it so they could put up a bigger one again that is more efficient. But I, uh, I had that the bragging rights to say, I'm not only carbon neutral, I'm carbon negative since 85 because of that one good investment in a wind turbine. And then I did all the other stuff. I, you know, recycle and made my home very energy efficient and ride the bike and take public transportation and all that other stuff, grow my own food, make my own compost, recycle my rainwater so I can use it for gardening, et cetera. Uh, there's a lot that I've done and, and I'm very happy with it all, but that, that wind turbine gave me certain bragging rights for quite a while. Mel, the podcast kitty is with us. If you see a cat, um, that's I see it. I love yeah, it. That's my cat. She's a she's a former feral cat turned total love cat, and she comes out during the podcast if she loves the guests. So you got some Mel love. Um, right. What do you, what do you, what does your what do your kids say? Are they like, oh, dad, come on, or are they very cooperative? Have they been cooperative from the get go? Do you get pushback? How's that go? I got pushback for a short time for a very specific reason in the late 80s from my, from my now grown kids who are both, yeah. let me flash forward for a second, they're both environmental champions that have a low, lower carbon footprint than me. My daughter works up at Tree People. She's a green activist. My son is an electrical engineer working in very important ways with electronics that are very good for the earth. He's a, uh, I've got a great son and a great daughter and great grandkids. But I, uh, back in the late 80s, my my son and daughter that were, they were then in their early teens, they were very concerned because my first wife and I had sadly divorced and I lived in LA in a little house, a little two bedroom house. They'd see me on the weekends. They lived in Ojai and the distance for me to get to Ojai or pick them up was beyond the range of my electric car. So I thought, oh dad, what are you doing? We're never going to see you again. Yeah. And then the electric car driving around LA, I'm like, wait a minute, how much you weigh? You know, I'm thinking of getting over the hill on over Mulholland to get into the valley, you know. I'm asking people's weights. I mean, what am I, yeah. out of my mind? So there was a crazy time with electric cars because they were very primitive back in 1990 and certainly very primitive. The one I bought in 1970, even more primitive. So yeah. I put my kids through a lot and they, but they somehow 
I guess, Stockholm syndrome. They identified with their captor and they uh, <laughs> wound up being very green, wonderful funny, but environmental funny. activists. <laughs> I'm not so sure I'm supposed to laugh at that, but okay, I'm going <laughs> you to. You are supposed to laugh at that. <laughs> intended as such. Thank you. <laughs> oh, goodness. So I was, I was thinking about just Ed in kindergarten. I don't know why. I, I usually ask people who come on the show what they were like in kindergarten. Have you always been like this? Have you always, you know, thought about recycling or anything? I mean, who are you in kindergarten? What was Ed? Kindergarten Ed, take us there for a minute. I, um, boy, there's a lot to unpack with kindergarten. I won't get into too much of it, but uh, I um, had a real challenge when I was quite young. My mother was very sick at the time and she died when I was seven. So all those years leading up to that, it was sad to lose a mother, but then I adjusted to that fairly quickly after she passed when I was seven. But then I discovered when I was 16 that that woman was not my mother at all. It was a different woman who I would see every Christmas. So there was a lot going on in kindergarten that's very layered. And I boy, that's a whole session we could spend oh, yeah, on that. But, show, <laughs> yeah, but she was, uh, my stepmother was a great lady who passed when I was seven. My mother, who I discovered as my mother, I knew her. She's a woman, not by any coincidence, a woman I was crazy about. I just loved something about this woman I loved. Turned out it was because she was, in fact, my mother. So, but at kindergarten, I learned a good many things about taking naps and sharing and what have you. I hope everybody learns that stuff then. And but I was also I had a a bit of a problem with what was true and what was not true. Maybe because of the lie with my sure. who my mother was. But uh, I I was kind of a Pinocchio for a while in my younger years, and I finally outgrew that. Thank God, and decided to just you know, it's just hard enough to remember a lie. If you're a liar, I can barely remember what the truth is. So, you know, the truth is the easiest thing to remember and it's always the best story. So I finally came onto that, you know, some many years ago, thank God. But in kindergarten, I learned those golden rules and, and uh, those are some of the best lessons you're going to learn. Yeah. What about high school? Were you, were you an actor? Were you always a budding actor? I, I was, I wanted to be an actor from the earliest age because my father was an actor and he made it look easy. And so I thought it was easy. It is not easy. And I no. thought, you know, I should just get a series. Dad, why don't you get me a wagon train or a Perry Mason episode or Gunsmoke? I want a series. Can you make it happen now? Let's go. Wake me when I'm famous. I didn't have any idea about the amount of work that's involved in it. So I wanted to be an actor, but I made no headway whatsoever. And then finally, when I was 17 and I had taken some acting classes, imagine that, studying for something, a field you want to thrive in. I mm-hmm. took some classes and I began to work as an actor. But I uh, yeah, I started working at 17. I've been working my whole life, so I'm very lucky. But I'm convinced if my dad had been a plumber, I'd be fitting pipe now. I wanted to do what he did. And uh, that's just the way it was. He was a great influence on me in many ways, my father. Yeah, tell, tell us more about him. Everybody was like, please have him talk about his dad. And I think my dad just absolutely loved I love talking about loved father. Yeah, please. I'm just going to sit back and I tell us. I loved uh, I loved talking about my dad. I love my dad a lot. You know, I'm one of those people with the Tom, uh, the, I'm sorry, with the Mark Twain quote about, you know, my father was such a idiot when I was a teenager. I could barely stand to be around the old fool. It's amazing how much smarter he got by the time I was 22. You know, yeah. and that's kind of with the experience. I I had a lot of uh, notes from my father when I was a young man. Then as I got a bit older, I saw the reason why he did a lot of the things that he did. 
and uh, had a lot of understanding about all of them. So he was a good influence in so many ways. He was a great actor. He won an Oscar, which you see behind me, I think there, from Sweet Bird of You, over this side, sorry. There's an Oscar back there somewhere. He won for Best Supporting Actor in 1962 for a movie called Sweet Bird of Youth with Paul Newman and Geraldine Page. He won a Tony for being on Broadway in a wonderful play with Paul Muni called Inherit the Wind. He was one of the 12 jurors in 12 Angry Men, wonderful movie by Sidney Lumet with an incredible cast. My dad was juror number 10, was incredible in it, as he was in Patterns, a thing that um, Patterns was a great a movie that he did that was written by Rod Serling. And uh, he was great in that. He was great in everything that he did. Boomerang, this movie that Kazan directed, Ilya Kazan, just a wonderful actor. And so I got to be around that, got to meet these wonderful actors and actresses and was able to pursue that career myself. So uh, I'm, I'll forever be grateful for him for teaching me acting without ever letting me know we're going to take an acting lesson. Now, he would have me run lines with him, which was a benefit to him, I know, but also was a benefit to me because he'd give me little notes. You'll help me out, Eddie, if you try this, I think. And I'd try something different with the performance. It's just the guy who's trying to cue him and help him with his lines. But in so doing, it was an acting class from a great actor named named Ed Begley. So I'm very fortunate to have been born his son in many ways. What did he love to do other than act? Just like a couple of things that he loved to do other than act. Oh, there's several. I've had several other things I've made money at and a fairly good living at both. I was uh, an assistant cameraman for years. I got into Screen Actors Guild in 1967 and my three sons. And I was literally expecting the phone to ring off the hook after I got into SAG and they aired the episode. You know, cue the crickets. You know, I got another job, maybe one job the next nine months later or something. I can't remember a year later. So I didn't want to be an out of work actor for too long. And I loved being on sets and I loved cameras, motion picture cameras and still cameras. And I learned a lot about motion picture cameras on the set with my dad. And I took classes at Valley college in LA, Los Angeles Valley college. And I got into a camera union known as NABET, not the larger union, which is called the IATSE, the bigger union, but it was NABET. They've since merged years ago. I was in that union and did a lot of commercials and other uh, different work as a cameraman for many years and did very well with it. And then, but then acting started to beckon. I got on this show called Room 222 and I worked on that a bit. But I was also, then I bought a house when I was about 30, when I was 30, when I, now that I think about it, I bought up my first house. And right after I bought the house, work slowed down, you know, acting work. And I wasn't as skilled as I was with the earlier equipment as a cameraman. I couldn't really go back to that. So I started working as a carpenter because I was quite handy. And I'd taken a class at LA Community Adult School uh, down in Olympic in Los Angeles. And I learned a greater level of skill than my handyman stuff. And I started to make little wooden racks, like little spice racks or like bathroom racks out of walnut. I started to make tables for people and started to make a chest of drawers. And I became something of not like Harrison Ford. He's a real master carpenter and a master actor. I'm a journeyman (laughs) actor and a journeyman um, carpenter, but I made uh, a shed for David L. Lander and Kathy Lander from Laverne and Shirley. I made a table for Elena Calinotes, who was in five easy pieces. I did, I, you know, did lots of, 
this woman, Helena Calinote, she was in Five Easy Pieces, this movie with Jack Nicholson. Yep, she's, I love that movie. Yeah, wonderful movie. She's the one with Tony Basil in the back of the car going, baloney, we're going to Alaska. It's polluted here. The pollution's going to kill us all. She's smoking a cigarette and talking about the environment. It's a great, she's a wonderful actor. She's still mm-hmm. with us and uh, doing wonderful stuff today. So she had me make her a table. Other people had me. I worked for Frank Geary, the architect, putting up drywall and framing. I worked for a lot of friends. Michael McKean, I did some fencing for him, you know, from Spinal Tap, Michael McKean, Laverne and Shirley, Michael McKean. He and David Lander both gave me work. Carl Gottlieb, the guy who wrote the screenplay for Jaws, he and Allison Kane, his wife, gave me work building a whole wall unit, you know, for his den. So I worked as a, as worked. a, a carpenter for quite a while. And then the acting picked up and I didn't have to go back and do that. I could do that at my leisure. Yeah. So really not handed to you. You really, you really have had to work for what you have. And my dad was a great influence in that way too. You know, when I yeah. said I wanted to be an actor, he said, good, pursue that. But you got to have more than one string to your bow. You know, mm-hmm. have do something else too, you know, find other things that you do. Because he was a guy who had done everything. He'd been a short order cook. He'd been in the Navy, worked in carnivals, worked in, uh, wire, the wire mold plant in Hartford, Connecticut, where he grew up. He was a factory worker that made it late in life, really. You know, so my dad had many things that he did, and he did very well in most of them. Yeah, I love that. Do you, um, was there was there a moment where you were like, okay, I've made it as an actor. I'm good to go. Is there? Do you have a, a pivotal moment like that? I didn't think it at the, I mean, I knew it was a good thing when it finally happened. When I got a regular job in a series that went beyond a pilot went beyond 13 episodes. In fact, I don't think I'd ever had 13 episodes before. No, I had not. I'd been a recurring character on Room 222, but I was the first time a regular on a show that went 13 episodes and eventually six years. That show was called St. Elsewhere. And from that point to this, I've never really struggled. I've had some years where I had to tighten my belt, but I never really struggled after that. It's always been very much easier than it was in the earlier years. I, uh, you, you're on a show like that with people like Denzel Washington and David Morris and Bill Daniels, Ed Flanders, Bonnie Bartlett, Christina Pickles, you know, Alfre Woodard. You're on a show like that for six years. You've got to really mess up to blow that one. You know, you're going to work somewhere in entertainment. Maybe it's dinner theater. Fine. <laughs> but you're going to be working it's in the entertainment industry the rest of your life. Unless you do something crazy, you run into a busload full of, you know, uh, llamas from, you know, Tibet or what have <laughs> you, with a needle in your arm. I don't know what you could do to mess up a good yeah, job like saying elsewhere, but people have done it. Well, so, yeah, to, to have you on, my husband said, you know, a little bit before your time here, saying elsewhere, but, you know, we got to go to Netflix here and, and or, or wherever it is. I think it's on Hulu, actually. I, I think it is it. on Hulu. Yes, Hulu. I've heard yeah. that. So for those of you who want to binge watch this, what a what a great show. I was, I was sitting there like, oh, okay. This is like house before house. I get it, you know, kind of thing, or or ER before ER, um, you know, shows shows like that, um, but different. It's it's uh, I I love the the consideration and the compassion that the doctors have. Yeah, it's them. a wonderful show. It's got a what lot a of heart, and hold, that's why it holds oh. up today. Yeah, so that that was fun, and to to see an actor like Denzel Washington too, and I was like, oh, that's cool. So much <laughs> fun. Did you know, did you know what the time, like, okay, 
he's going to be famous and he's, you know, they're all going to be, you know, they're, it's going to take off. Did you? Yeah, I really thought they all would do well and they all did in different ways. You know, there's a guy who really just played an orderly and it was a small part. He maybe would do five or six episodes a year. His name was Eric Lonneville, talented, talented director who got a start on St. Elsewhere. He did one episode and he did so good at it. He did two the next year. He did three the year after that. And he became one of the most sought after directors in Hollywood. His name is Eric Lonneville. And he was clearly, you know, man of great talent back then. Dell was, uh, Denzel was always remarkable. You know, we knew he was going to go places. Indeed, we didn't have to wait till after the show. During the show, he did Glory. He did Cry Freedom. He did these shows while we were still shooting St. Elsewhere. And Bruce Paltrow was good enough. And Deng's, the wonderful Denzel acknowledged this at his, uh, you know, uh, AFI tribute. It was a wonderful evening, and Denzel got the uh, the award he deserved, the AFI evening, that tribute, and he thanked Bruce Paltrow for letting him, you know, bend the, the schedule a few weeks here or there so he could do glory and cry freedom, which Bruce Paltrow was a great way in that way. He allowed me to do a, a movie called Accidental Tourist. He allowed Denzel to do these things. He nurtured uh, our talents in so many ways. He was a great friend and a great producer. That's a great movie. You know, I I love movies, and um, what you're in one of my favorite all time movies, The In Laws. <laughs> Just that's a classic. <laughs> Peter Falk and Eleanor Serpentine, Shelley. Oh, I gotta ask you something. What was the name of that guy that worked in the movie with us? Oh, that's right. His name was Ed Begley Jr. I think he's an albino. Very interesting guy. He was a good friend, Peter. We had the same birthday. We had so much fun over the years. A dear friend. He and Shara Denise, his wife, and uh, yeah, one of my closest friends was dear Peter Fox. So thank you for bringing him up. Oh, that, yeah, I'm, I'm a little kid when that movie came out and I just, my dad let me watch it. And I just, I could watch that movie over and over and over again. I've Alan always, Arkin. What a talent. Oh. There's nobody better in the world than Alan Arkin. Well, he and Peter evenly matched the two of them together. I mean, how lucky am I to be cast in that movie? I just, you know, did backflips when I got that part. Oh, I bet. Yeah. What a, those, th- those are people my whole life. I've been like, wouldn't it be like, like you were like, wouldn't it be cool to someday like talk to them, interview them. So this is a really cool mo- moment for me, Ed. I just want you to know that this is so fun to be able to talk to you. This is like a moment oh, in my Elizabeth, life that you, I'm never going to forget. And I'm so grateful and it makes me a little teary. And <laughs> so thank you. Cause I just, thank I you. my dad would have loved this by the way, just so you know. I'll be thinking of them. That's for oh, sure. Please. Yeah, Jim Hamilton, say some say some prayers. So, do you? We always ask our guests if they have a uh, an incredible yes moment in their life, and an incredible yes is where I'm a little choked up with my dad's stuff. Is where you said yes to someone or something, and it cha- completely changed your life. And I think people sometimes have many of them, but can you think of one or two of those where you said yes to someone or something, and it just totally changed your life? Yes. My current wife, Rochelle Carson, there's a couple of yeses there that I didn't want at all. Number one was a relationship with her. I did everything to not have a relation with her relationship with her the first three years. I changed my number once. I so didn't (laughs) thought I didn't want. And then one day I woke up to realize she's absolutely the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. But I, for three years, I had it way wrong. That's one. Number two, having our beautiful 22 year old daughter. 
I didn't want it at all. I had two kids, zero population growth. I'd had my two kids with Ingrid, my previous wife. And uh, she and I were very close, by the way, after we divorced. And Rochelle, my current wife, and I would go up and visit her. But that's two kids. That's my limit. And Rochelle argued correctly, of course. Wait a minute. If there's three people, you and Ingrid and me, three kids would be three, you know, three kids and three adults and still zero growth. And so we had this wonderful surprise, Hayden. The minute that I heard uh, that news that Rochelle was pregnant, I flipped a switch and was instantly from like, I don't want any more kids to over the moon, joyously happy for every year, every minute from those 20, during these past 22 some odd years. And uh, that was number two, the relationship, the child. And then number three was moving to this house that you see me in right now, this house. I was in a house I had I had with my first wife that we had kind of our LA place that we had. We lived up in Ohio, but we had a little house in town that we would, you know, we we just bought it at the end of St. Elsewhere. Then St. Elsewhere got canceled right after we bought the house. We wanted to have a place in town. So if we spent the night in LA, we'd have a place to stay and I'd have a nice place to work on the seventh year of St. Elsewhere. That didn't happen. So I stayed in this little house and uh, I was there 26 years and Rochelle kicking and screaming, you know, decided that we should move into another house. This house, which we built from the ground up that I'm in right this second, this house, and I didn't want to move. The minute that I spent the first night in here, I flipped a, a similar switch and I ventilated. It was the best, the next best thing I did. Relationship, child, house. Thank you. Rochelle's batting a thousand. So I got to listen to her more often. <laughs> yeah, she, I was telling you before we went on, she's beautiful. She's just a lovely soul. And she's very funny too. So yeah. If you can laugh with somebody, that's got to count for a lot. I hope it does. Don't you think? Yeah, that's that's so important. Tell us about the house. That the house is so. That's a special house. Yeah. What happened was, I gave Rochelle some criteria because again, I did not want to move at all, so I made it impossible for her. You know, we had some money from doing this show, living with Ed for a few years. We'd done it three years, and so she wanted to. Uh, move into this street specifically and this house specifically. Oh, no, no, she hadn't seen the house yet. She wanted to move from where we were. She wanted to move somewhere. So I said, okay, Rochelle, here's the deal. If you can find a house that has this size backyard so I can have a bigger vegetable garden, has a south-facing roof so I can get my solar up there and they work efficiently with no trees, no shading. And uh, and then also I want a, a good area so I can put a rainwater tank on the ground. And you can do it for, I wrote down a number, for this price, I'll move. She'll never find it. Okay, honey. Thanks. Good luck. Within a few days, she found just exactly such a house. It had the right size yard for a garden, a good place for a um, rainwater tank and a south facing roof. And there was no shading on the roof at all for the solar panels. And so I went, okay, honey, we'll do it. I forgot about something called the winter solstice. The sun moves at a sharp angle to the south during the winter and that house, I didn't really get the proper planner. There's a device that you use that can tell you all that. I can't remember the name of it, but it's a very important device for people installing solar. I didn't borrow one from somebody and go put it up on my roof and look at it. During the late fall to the early spring, the house roof was covered with shade from the big tree to the south. It's a giant oak tree and you never, ever, ever, I would move into this house if it meant cutting down an oak tree. I wouldn't do it. Just when it's the oak tree is a hundred years old. There's no way I'm going to move it, cut it down even to 
to get solar panel on my roof. Not going to happen. So what we realized is we had to build from the ground up. We couldn't use any of the old house. We had to build the two stories to get those panels out of the shade of this big oak tree. Now the panels were in open sun year round. And, uh, and then we also got to do other things that were important. We had 12 inch thick walls, which we have to this day. We had solar, passive solar design where everything, all the glass on the house is facing the south side. So it gets more heat from the sun during the winter and fall. And it gets less heat during the summer when the sun's straight up. So we did everything, 10,000 gallon rainwater tag buried up underground, gray water system with a shower and laundry, all that water goes out to irrigate the trees. High efficiency, four units of heating and air with different zones. So if Rochelle wants at a certain temperature there, you don't have to heat or cool the whole house for it. So on and on, there's so much efficiencies in this house. It's called, it's called a lead platinum home. There's silver, gold, then there's platinum. And we got that platinum. And with platinum rating, that's like miles per gallon on a car. It's that for a house. It's the lead standard. Leadership in uh, environment, leadership in energy and environmental design. L-E-E-D. L-E-E-D, lead, is yep. what, what it is. And we got a lead platinum rating, which is, there's not that many homes, residential you know, properties in the United States that have it. Maybe 150 or 200. There's a wow. lot of uh, commercial buildings that have it, but there's not that many for a whole nation that have achieved that status. And we did it. So you have to do everything, even down to the construction process. How much waste are you creating that's going into a landfill? How much are you recycling? Where does your material come from? Are you getting Italian marble where it's shipped over from Italy in a boat, you know, with all the energy it takes to get that giant stone from, you know, Italy to here or from some other country to here? We did sourced everything locally when we could. We got nothing like long distance Italian marble, nothing like that. Yeah. And they, they look at all that and you get points for all of it. We made all our points. So this is a lead platinum home, which is a wave of the future. This is what people realize they have to start doing now, not just to get a lead rating, but for the future of the planet. Do, do people copy your home? Like, I, I don't know if that's a good question or not, but do, do people want the plans for it or to know more information from you all the time? Like, are you a consultant when people? I put a lot of the information on the website, edbegley.com or beggleyliving.com. Either one will take you to all the info about the house. We give a tour of the house and you can see how it all works. But there's a couple things I want to, you know, call out for a second because I didn't know about them when we built the house. I know about insulation. I know about solar panels. I've had all that stuff for many decades. Yeah. But what I didn't know about was something called um, act on demand. When yeah. you turn on the faucet, the hot water faucet in my old house and any house I'd ever been in, turn it on to get hot water. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, uh, three forever. Mississippi, 28 yeah. Mississippi, forever. 27. Yeah. And then so now you got hot water in the bath or at the kitchen sink. Forever. The solution to that has been around for years. One solution, which is to put something called a circulating pump. Your plumber makes the, the plumbing to that tap as a loop. And then there's a circulating pump that circulates that hot water slowly, slowly through that loop. So you're, you, get, you have hot water, one and a half Mississippi, you've got hot water at the tap. But there's a problem with that, probably you picked up on right away. You've got a pump running all the time, electricity being used to run that motor to... And what else are you doing? If you're running that hot water through the loop or that goes through your house, sometimes a cold part of your house, 
you're cooling that water measurably and you have to heat it again and heat it again. The, the water heater works a lot harder if you, you know, to have hot water there. But now I finally get to the, the real solution, which is called act on demand. It has the same loop coming from the hot water heater to the tap. All that's the same. This same motor, but there's yeah. a light sensor up in the ceiling in every bathroom and in the kitchen. Every bathroom and kit and the kitchen has a sensor, a motion detector, not a light sensor, sorry, a motion detector. When you come into the kitchen, <laughs> silently in the basement, comes on that little motor. It starts circulating it then. Not at night when you sleep, not during the day while you're away. It only comes on when someone goes in the kitchen. They might want some hot water, and you usually do, to wash your hands in the bathroom. You're always going to want hot water these days when you go in to use the bathroom. Yeah. You come home from your car, you're going to wash your hands these days, as you should. Yeah. So it, that's oh, a great device. And, now, and Act on Demand is called. Act on Demand. And that's something any home could have? Or is that like something yeah, and, you need to build you know, it's not for everybody of, uh, you know, the, there might be some budgetary requirements that people can't meet. You know, it's, it's not really expensive, but it's not really cheap either, but you sure get your money back in like two, two and a half years with the, all the natural gas or electricity you're going to save, you know, by not, you know, having, and, and water you're going to save by not having, you know, that, that tap on all the time. This, can I tell one more kind of oh, new you, thing that yeah, I found can, that I, I discovered can. that I never knew about? while we were building the house and my contractor, Scott Harris found them. The other one is called hot sun. It's a kind of solar kind of flexible, what they call it used to call solar roll. It's a black kind of solar tubing that you can put up. And I had an Ohio when we lived there. It's very cheap solar for a pool. It's called solar roll. It's basically that with an important distinction. You put it on the back, the reverse, the flip side of your solar electric panels. Why are you doing that? Because there's tremendous heat coming to those solar panels. If you've ever been near a solar panel in the sun, you touch it. Oh, damn, I burned my hand. Because yeah. it's so, it's so, it's almost black. It's so dark, dark blue. It's often looks black that if you put your hand on it, you would burn your hand. Solar panels, when they get hot, lose efficiency. Solar hot water panels do not. You want them to get as hot as you can, but solar electric panels lose efficiency. 15% efficiency they lose when you get them hot. So you're cooling the panel and you're heating water for the pool because Rochelle insisted we keep the pool. It was a weird geometric shape when we moved in. I said, you can keep it if we can cover it so you don't have evaporation and to get it warmer because I wasn't going to have a, a heater in the backyard using natural gas or electricity for a pool. It's a frivolous expense in my opinion. She wanted it. You've got to work with your partners in life. So she got her pool, but then it wasn't warm enough. With hot sun, it's now 91 degrees from excess heat that is also cooling my panels and making them more efficient. Once again, it's called hot sun, H2O sun. H2O, like the formula for water, H2O sun is another way to search it. Yeah, yeah, we have a pool and a, and a solar blanket, but it's never really that warm, especially here in Maine. But uh, it, it works. Uh, yeah, California than... stays a little bit warmer. It was yeah. been in the low 30s and high 40s recently but now it's starting to warm up a little bit and i turned on the uh you know the hot sun system so it would come on again and the yeah. water heated up uh the past uh day and a half uh 10 degrees so far so and right. climbing so yeah. it'll be a comfortable temperature for me in a, a two or three days now it yeah, takes we... a while for it to gradually when the water gets that cold from winter time <laughs> you know gets down into the 40s here 
the, yeah. the cool water does. I'm probably cold than that where you are. And so uh, you got to heat it up again over the course of a few days, which I don't mind waiting. Yeah. Yeah. We moved here from uh, Tahoe. Uh, our sons were born in the Walnut Creek area and we had a house in Tahoe and then we moved to Maine back in 2004. So we've been in Maine a while, but it's, it's hard to get used to temperatures that dip below 70 in here still this I many years Tahoe. later. It's like it dips below 70. I'm like, oh, I'm cold. <laughs> I love Maine and I love Tahoe too. I've spent time in both and both great places. They're very to live. similar in a way too. Uh, yeah. It's the ocean, I guess, of course, but it's, I can see that. It feels like a postcard here, just like it used to in Tahoe. It's, it's very beautiful here. Very, yeah. very easy to live here. Okay. Let's go. Let's go back to um, acting again, just for fun. We'll bounce back and forth a little bit, just so we cover all the bases with everybody. But um, people want to know about young Sheldon and uh, your, your role there. Are you having fun? Elizabeth, I'm having so much fun. You know, I didn't know that another role like this would come along in my twilight years here at St. Elsewhere when I was in my early 30s. <clears throat> I was on Six Feet Under in the 90s. You know, I've had a few other wonderful shows. Arrested Development I got to do in Better Call Saul and love those shows. Yeah. But I'm on Young Sheldon a lot. It's like I'm a semi-regular or something. <laughs> and the writers write stuff for me I couldn't have dreamed in my life the people would give me just this great stuff with this wonderful young kid, Ian, yeah. you know, and uh, the cast is just great. I have a lot of scenes with Wally Sean, Wallace Sean and I have a lot of scenes together and uh, with Annie Potts who plays Mima. I so love all, her. How oh, is she? she? She's so, she's so great. She's another she's a, one. I'm just, I a grew dear up lady and a wonderful actress. I just love working with her. It's just a, a dream come true. Steve Malaro is a showrunner. And he writes this, he and his writing team write stuff for me. I just couldn't imagine. It's so, it's such a treat to do that. I look forward to each script reading it. And I'm a fan of the show. If I stopped being on it tomorrow, I would watch it every Thursday. I love, love, love the show. show. You know why? Because it's funny. And it's also a wonderful, sweet show with a lot of heart. It's a love letter to people in Texas, you know, in parts of the country, you know, other than New York and California. It's a wonderful show with a lot of heart that we need more than ever now. Yeah. And it, it's funny, it, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, very I, funny. Yeah. I love everything about it. He seems like a sweet kid. He just seems like a really sweet kid. He is. He's very yeah. smart and very mm -hmm. sweet. He's got his head straight on his shoulders. He doesn't, you know, have any, you know, odd ways of thinking the way young and old people get sometimes in this business. You know, people start thinking things that aren't productive for their, any part of their life, but he doesn't do that. His mother's wonderful. Yeah. His father's an actor too on Broadway and Hamilton, yeah. I believe. And, you know, he's got wonderful parents and I haven't met his dad yet, but I know of him and I see his mother all the time. She's terrific. He's a great kid. That's just a wonderful yeah. person. I'm delighted to work with him. Yeah. Beautiful. Do you, do you have any favorite, I, I, I love asking you this question because it's going to be a fun one. Do you have any favorite actors? Or actresses that you've worked. I don't <laughs> I know, know where to begin. Okay. I don't. I'll. I'll try. Well, begin at the obvious. I worked. I did a movie with Meryl Streep. You know, shoot me. I'm done. There's nothing. How's it going to get any better than that? I worked with Jack Nicholson in the '70s on a movie that he directed called Going South. Oh. I worked with Bob Hoskins, Michael Caine, John Lithgow. You know, oh, all the cast of St. Elsewhere I mentioned. I worked with Kirk Douglas. Mm. I've worked with. Uh, I just. You know, I've <laughs> worked with an incredible people my whole career. I, I don't want to get a list of everybody, but Jeff I have Martin. worked with tremendous, tremendous actors. 
over the years and I just feel blessed beyond words. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Do you have any any absolute favorites or are you not allowed to play favorites? I don't want to play favorites. It's impossible with that crowd. But wait a minute. I'm actually, no, indulge me if you will. I'm going to read your list because I'm writing my memoirs. I'm writing my memoirs right now and there's a list. Oh. I do a thing. I talk about how when I was a young man, I had a slim grasp of the truth, but I wasn't a very good liar. And so then I, because I wasn't a very good liar, I say, and in this next passage, I'm going to read you a list of things, and one of them is a lie. And so then I list, and among that, I list the people that I work with. So I'll read, since you asked, I'll read that list. Here are the list of the people I've not only worked with, but gotten to know. Kirk Douglas, Meryl Streep, Peter Falk, Jessica Tandy, Alan Arkin, Michael Caine, Billy Wilder, Richard Pryor, Dave Mamet, Jeff Goldblum, Eric Idle, Jane Fonda, Denzel Washington, Buck Henry, Don Henley. Gina Davis, Dabney Coleman, Lily Tomlin, Harry Dean Stanton, Leonardo DiCaprio, Vince Gilligan, Richard Dreyfus, Michael Richards, Danny Glover, Harvey Keitel, John Cleese, William Hurt, Larry Kasdan, Fred Willard, Larry David, Tom Waits, Angelica Houston, George Siegel, Pam Greer, Penny Marshall, Ed Asner, Diane Keaton, Alfre Woodard, Jim Carrey, Gary Shandling, Jeff Bridges, Yafit Koto, Cindy Williams, Robin Williams, Robin... Robin Williams, I knew, was a friend. Rob Reiner and Christopher Guest. How's that oh, for a list? You asked for it. I love it. I love it. Wait, I finally so read. Wait, I got it right here. I got a list right here. <laughs> and look for very soon. Uh, I mean, soon being maybe a year. I don't know when, but I'll finish writing up my memoirs and then uh, um, I'll publish them and you'll be able to buy it if you want to for 25 cents at Marshall's. <laughs> do you know that uh, I used to do uh, make cookies for Robin Williams? Loved I loved Robin movie. Williams so much. He was a great actor, a great comedian, and we used to go bike riding together. Really? He was a great bike rider. He was a great mountain oh. biker. We'd go up in the hills and ride mountain bikes with the mayor of Los Angeles at the time, Dick Reardon. Yeah. We had dinners together in Hawaii. We spent time in the States together. I was there for his 40th birthday in Napa. Oh. I just, what a what a loss. I, I don't yeah. want to dwell on it too much. It's so oh. emotional still. That I loved hurts. him. Yeah, that hurt everybody. I, yeah. I uh, had the pleasure of interviewing Ed Asner on this show many years ago. Great. I'm so happy to hear that. He was a dear, dear friend. We worked together many times, and I just loved him. He was a, him. a great man in every sense of the word. Yeah, he, um, the doorbell rang during our show, and he answered it. <laughs> it's hilarious. He got oh, that's great. That's, that's funny. Would you mind if I go answer the door? I'm like, nope, it's your show, Ed. <laughs> you go for Part it. of the show. That's reality. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that was funny. I'm like, I don't know what to do here. Yeah, you go answer your door. <laughs> this is funny. Um, oh, what a beautiful list. What if I, and so you're, okay, so you're writing your memoir. Yes. Ah, so what, what, when does that come out or what are you going to do with that? Do you know yet? Or are we allowed to know that? After, after about 27 different people whose opinion I respect said, you got to write this down. Yeah. This thing that happened with you, will you? you know, went up to visit a friend in the hills and in Chatsworth there and smoked a, a joint with this guy. It turned out to be Charles Manson. I smoked mm -hmm. a joint with a guy that turned out to be, I don't know, he's just some wacky guy in the hills. That and all kinds of other crazy things. I don't want to spoil some of the surprises, but I, I feel like this character, Zelig, 
in a Woody Allen movie of the same name where he winds up in all these historical things like Forrest Gump. He's there, you know, at different places in our collective history and memory. Forrest Gump is, and I just, one wonders how he got there. And that's kind of my reaction. How did I get so lucky to be born Ed Begley's son so I could do all the things I did and wind up in all the places that I wound up in where I got to know, not only meet the Beatles, but know them and know all these people on the list. You know, I just, it's extraordinary. It just, I feel blessed. Cesar Chavez with a dear friend of mine, the labor leader, United Farm Workers Union, Cesar Chavez. I got to be one of the people that had the sadness, but the honor of carrying his coffin through the streets of Delano. You know, I have good friends like Jeff Goldblum in my life and other such people who are Christopher Guest, Christopher Guest, who's given me great work and been a great friend. And I talk about all that. Marlon Brando was a dear friend of mine. Jack Nicholson still is. You know, I talk about a lot of that just being a, an oddball fly in the wall from Van Nuys, this Valley kid that got to be, you know, meshed in all this film history, you know, with no real credentials to do so. I just happened to show up one day and, and be invited inside. Yeah. I'm, you know what I like about the list too is, you know, people are, yes, people are great actors, but people are people. They're fascinating. Like to, to, to be able to sit here with you for an hour, I find it just absolutely fascinating to be able to speak with you. So it's it's neat to, to pe- you know, people are still people and they have all these hobbies and talents and gifts and and so forth. And um, I, d- I love that. Just absolutely well, love it. Just wonderful. I feel blessed and to still be working and still have so many of these people in my life. Yeah. You know, I, I'm so glad that even though we divorced, we, Ingrid and I, my first wife and I, we got to be friendly then friends, then best friends, then like best friends, brother and sister that just loved her so deeply for yeah. all of uh, her her wonderful life. She sadly passed years ago. So how lucky am I to have made peace with somebody that, you know, things can go the opposite direction when you have a divorce and neither of us allow that to happen. Yeah, I, won't I, mean, I don't want to get emotional here on your wonderful show, but yeah. she was a great lady and I'm so lucky to have had her in my life and have the two wonderful kids that we had together and have the grandchildren I have together and have this beautiful daughter with my new wife. I just, I don't know, you know, I won the lottery. I don't remember even buying a ticket, Elizabeth. I just won the lottery without purchasing a ticket. I'm a very lucky man. Yeah. What was it, what's it like to be authentic? Like authentically you in the, in the nineties and, and talk about authenticity and the importance of us all being authentically us and, and accepting our own selves and allowing you know, we sometimes we feel like people don't like us when we're authentic. I had to start being authentic in 1979 when I finally stopped doing some things that were going to kill me. I was, I don't want to go into great detail about it, but I certainly needed help and some sort of a program. I needed other people to do it with. I couldn't do it alone. The challenge I was facing in 1979, and one of the the best ways to to get sober, to do anything like that is to practice a program of what they call rigorous honesty. And when you're wrong, promptly admit it. So I started doing that. And as I said earlier, you know, I was given to fabrications when I was quite young. I talk about in the book, there was one point where Sister Killian out in Merrick, Long Island, where I live, asked me my homework. And I went, oh, I, you know, I threw it in the trash can. It must have fallen off your desk, you know, and here it is takes out in the hallway, dumps out the trash, said, find it. Elizabeth, I was in the trash can looking for five full minutes for that homework in that trash can. It was I was never going to find it because it wasn't there. 
and I wasn't looking for it for show to show her I'm looking. I was really looking for it, expecting to find it yeah. for five. Now, I was only six or seven at the time, so I guess I was capable. You could excuse that kind of delusion, but I woke up a little bit then and then continued to, continue to in other ways where lies got me in trouble. For instance, lies to my first wife that caused the problems that caused us to get divorced you know, dishonesty. I got rigorously honest in 1979 when I got sober, but I still didn't practice it with, oh, a small group, I guess about half the population of the planet called women. I still kind of chose to not be honest with yeah. women for years. And this is happening with a man who's ostensibly sober. So I finally got well in all those areas, you know, uh, many years ago now. And so that's wonderful. I have a marriage that I imagine will be successful for many more years. You never know what life is going to throw you, but it won't happen through any fault of mine this time. You know, it just, it won't. And I have a wonderful wife this time too. And so I don't imagine anybody's going to make any big mistakes like that. So yeah. one can learn, one can grow. And I have in some key ways. I haven't had a drink or drug since 1979. And I'm very proud of that. And uh, yeah, my life is very good today because of that level of, of rigorous honesty, as they say. Yeah. We, um, I'm a lifelong non-drinker and don't do drugs or anything like that. I just, I don't know. I, I made a choice back in high school to just not do it. I don't know why or what it's like a, I don't know. It's a, almost like a foreign substance. I had one, like a, a funky year in college, um, which is kind of in my book that I write about. But, um, other than that, just not a, I don't know. It's, I don't know. My body just does not agree with the stuff. So, that's that's something about me that's been authentically hard to to do. Yeah, like, I didn't let any of that stop me. All that stuff happened to me too. My body rejected everything. I I wouldn't be deterred. I stayed with it. Run into cars, get into trouble with the police, all that stuff. Nope. Hook me up again. Let's have some more bloody marys this morning. Let's start. Oh. And I uh, was that's a crazy way to live and a a sure way to die. And fortunately that didn't happen. So I got to experience the things I did these past 72 years. I'm just blessed. Okay. I got to hold this up. It's so cute. I hope I'm holding it upright to make you sure. I, yeah. Talk about this. I'm missing one uh, or maybe more, but let's, let's talk about your products. <laughs> How cute. You know, back when I started in 1970, I would use vinegar and water instead of some harsh cleanser, you know, like uh, for, formula four or nine or Windex. I would use baking soda instead of Comet. But basically, it's still it's just vinegar and it's just baking soda. It's not going to clean as well as some of these other products. So I vowed to one day find somebody with a good formula to make non-toxic products that clean really well. And I had a wonderful company of my own called Begley's Best for Years. And I brought these, bought this formula from a guy. I didn't buy, didn't own the formula, but I kind of rented it from him to make not this product, but one before it. Uh, one that preceded, you wouldn't have the original products here in your home. Uh, but these products that you're showing, I started selling uh, five years ago now with a man called Mark Cunningham at Lab Clean. That's my new line. And the old line is long gone. Those products don't exist anymore. But they cleaned every bit as good as the, good. You know, the, the harsh products. And this one, you've got a pet stain and odor remover right there, I believe. That's good, too. Yeah, it smells good because it is good. It's not going to hurt anybody because you got kids down on the floor crawling around the kitchen or on the wood floors in the living room. You got pets there licking their paws, kids licking their fingers. You don't want to have something toxic on the floor no. for a floor cleaner or for pet stain and odor remover on the carpet. 
you've got those wonderful, frail, small creatures who don't want, you don't want to have toxics in their system. So it cleans good. It is good. And uh, I've been selling them for years. You can go to edbegley.com and find them. You can just do a Google search, Begley Cleaning, and it'll come right up. Amazon, just type in Begley Cleaning. It'll pop right up and you can buy them. And I'm telling Elizabeth, try them. They they work as good as anything you've ever used and 100% non-toxic and safe. Yeah. And our, I love this because our food allergy community is going to love this too. So um, we always look for products in our food allergy community. Um, aside from food, of course, um, because a lot of products have different things in them and that make us sick. And um, these are, these are beautiful. So they're, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about that. So um, I'm going to, we also have best ever you awards. So we're going to be giving those our best ever you awards. So you'll see that. Right coming up. So, um, gosh, okay. We're at an hour and I really want to be respectful of your time. I don't want to keep you on and on and on here, but, um, is there, I wanted to, well, I want to make sure we end with something that you want to talk about. Of course. Um, if I forgot anything that you wanted to talk about, um, you're, I wanted to mention too, that I think your products are going to be on chewy.com. Yes, I believe they are. That's happening soon. Yes. Yeah, it's awesome. I've I heard that. I, that's been reported to me, and I can't say they're on there now, but I'm told they will be. So thank you for remembering that, Elizabeth. Thank yeah. you so much for that. Yeah, so Amazon, Walmart, Walmart Chewy.com, and it's Bagley's Earth Responsible Product. And um, tell what's the who's the dog? Just do you love dogs? Yeah, we've got a dog right now. My daughter has a dog called Ducky. We've had yeah. a few dogs over the years. We've had cats. We love our animal friends, mm -hmm. and so... Like you, I've had a lot of feral cats that I fixed and some of them I've even been able to get into the house. Some of them lived out in the yard for years, but yeah. uh, I love my feral friends. I love my house friends and uh, it's great. And I do have to go now, but I wanted to leave you with this thought. It's something that occurred to me many years ago. A dear friend said this to me and the, the best thing I can think of when making any decision in my life is to live simply so that others may simply live. And I'll leave everybody to think about that tonight. And I know you do that in your life, Elizabeth. And I'm just so happy and grateful to spend this time with you. It's been just wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. It's it's just a true honor and a true joy. And I wish you just all the best in everything you continue to do. It's so much fun to be able to speak with you. We're all so grateful. And um, from here, we're going to take this show and take the audio portion and put it over on our podcast. We'll put this up on YouTube. And we will continue to, to share uh, your wisdom with as many people as we can in your products. So thank you so much. So much fun to learn about you more and, and have you here. So I hate Bye. ending shows. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to let you end it um, and and just uh, listen to um, what you said and uh, just go with your website one more time because your website is beautiful. There's just so go to edbegley.com. That's the easiest way to remember, to remember it is edbegley.com or, or uh, beglyliving.com if you can remember that. But people, what was that? Begley life, Begley love, Begley living is one way, but edbegley.com is probably the easiest. Or to search online for any of their products, or just, you know, Begley cleaning products, it'll come right up like that. Perfect. All right. Thank you, Ed, and thank you everyone for being with us. Take care, everybody. Thank you, Elizabeth. What a joy.